Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves, hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at Brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hi everyone, my name is Susie Leach, and today it's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Robin Dunphy. Robin is another person who was drawn to my attention on Twitter. Her advocacy for people whose health is compromised, including people living with disabilities from across the spectrum, is what actually connected us. Robin is a recently retired IT specialist, including systems analysis design, which frankly I barely know what that is, and a retired certified practicing accountant. Robin is also a writer and has her own blog, which is limberation.com. Robin lives her best life despite um, living with a chronic illness, which is mainly psoriatic arthritis. However, she does have a, a few other conditions that she deals with. Hello, Robin, and welcome to Brainwaves. Thank you very much. Robin, tell us about what you see as the four states of health. Well, some time ago, I was talking to a friend and we we realised in, in our discussion that essentially this chronic classification, chronic illness classification that we've got now is essentially relatively new. Now, I have had some debates on Twitter about, oh, no, but chronically ill people existed in medieval times. Yes, they did, but my point is that today we live in far greater numbers for far longer than we ever did in, in, in prehistoric times. So if you go back 2,000 years, we had healthy people and we had people that were terminal. And then if we had unwell people, one of two things was going to happen. They were going to be curable and therefore go back to being healthy or they were going to pass away. They were going to be terminal. We didn't have this huge number of people that we've got now that because of our advances with medical science and with surgery and so on, that we're alive, we're living, but we're not curable and we're not 100% healthy. And so therefore we have to look at how as a society we continue to uh, involve us allow us to work we may have to have modifications around that and so on how we um, support us financially if we reach the point where we're not financially independent there's, there's a lot 
involved in how do we deal with this huge cohort of chronically ill people. And um, we know that it's quite a large number now. Uh, over 40% of the population are living with some form of chronic condition. Yes. So that's how I see these four states. We've got healthy, we've got unhealthy people who are curable. We've got obviously people who are terminal for various reasons, but then we've got this huge cohort of, of chronic, which is relatively new. Yeah. Look, Robin, what caused you? Uh, first, firstly, I think that's a really good analysis. Um, and I haven't actually heard of um, those categorizations before, the four categorizations that you just came up with. And I think it's very relevant. But just to start at the beginning, I guess, with you and your story, what caused you to establish liberation.com with its emphasis on movement as medicine, exercise as therapy and limbering up to live life well? Well, when I first was diagnosed as being unwell and having psoriatic arthritis, and initially I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, but that's something that quite often happens with this particular condition. Yes. Um, so, but I, I learned fairly early on that you, you wake up in the morning and you're quite stiff and, and you can be quite sore and so on. And as soon as I started moving, uh, I felt better. Yeah. So I then started to look at what were, what were the studies and what was the research around movement as medicine with my types of conditions and it was very clear uh, and I, I cite one of the, the main um, pain specialists from the US who, who talks about um, the resilience of people managing chronic pain and so on and one of the things that he cites that's where I stole the movement as medicine from I stole it mm -hmm. from him um, he talks about that's one of his four, sort of four critical factors is mm. using movement as medicine now it works for my sorts of conditions. There are, of course, medical con chronic conditions out there where movement would not be applicable, but certainly for a lot of conditions, it is. Certainly mine, it is. And so one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to be able to help other people because it can be quite challenging. It can be quite um, confronting, I think, for a lot of people to think about, oh, I'm sore but you want me to exercise well actually yes I do um, so but exercise as a word can be quite confronting and so uh, I liked the whole movement as medicine as a term and as a phrase where the liberation came from was really it was it's a question of of keeping yourself limber keeping yourself moving so that you actually keep your mobility and I made the word up because <laughs> it just seemed to fit. Um, so I made the word up and um, my, my initial plan was, and I did retrain, I went and did a fitness coaching course so that I would actually have formal um, personal training and fitness coaching qualifications to be able to maybe fill that gap for people who wanted to uh, be in a, in a gym environment, not totally dependent on sort of physiotherapists and so on and to actually be able to do some exercise and so that I could help those people. Now, of course, what's happened since then is I've had a total knee replacement, which means I can't maintain my CRP registration because I can't kneel and therefore I can't and so on and so forth. Yes. But I still write. I just can't any longer consult. Yes. Um, I don't feel that I'm 
and besides, you know, I'm 67. So my ability now to, you know, load the leg press for clients is perhaps not as good as it was yes. a few years ago. Yes. Um, and I've retired. So yes. I'm retired. But that was the whole. And I still write and I still try and encourage people to, um, you know, use movement as medicine, to use exercise as therapy where it's appropriate for their medical conditions. Yes. But it is appropriate for a lot more medical conditions than we actually like to think of it as being. Including, of course, for cancer. They're finding um, yes. evidence that people who exercise have better outcomes. Yes. Um, so, yeah. It, it does have a lot of, and I really encourage people to actually have that conversation with their, with their primary providers and say, you know, in all honesty, is movement as medicine something that will work for my particular condition? Is it something that, that, that I should be doing? Um, don't expect your doctors to be able to tell you what to do. They're doctors. They're not exercise yes. specialists by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, and certainly some of this, as you point out, is new research that's coming out. So um, it is worth just, you know, double-checking, pushing the issue. Is this something that would help me? That's right. And take medical advice as well. Look, I guess some of our listeners would like to know exactly what psoriatic arthritis is. And I'd like to know how and when your illness started, its signs, symptoms, how it impacted you and what you do to manage your pain. Um, psoriatic arthritis, there's, there's over 100 different forms of arthritis. Okay, I didn't know that, yeah. Yes, 100 different forms of arthritis. Um, the one I think that probably the two that everybody know about uh, is osteoarthritis, obviously, which is mechanical arthritis. But there's an awful lot of inflammatory arthritis. Mm. Rheumatoid arthritis is the one people probably mo know the most about. Um, psoriatic arthritis is another inflammatory arthritis. It has genetic um, connections. They're still researching all of that at this point in time, but um, definitely there is a genetic function. It is, has only recently been, and when I say recently, it was 1964 that the uh, American College of Rheumatology classified this as a separate distinct disease. Now, we think potentially that I'm third generation based on what we know, but we can't specifically prove that, but we, there are various reasons that we think I'm third generation. So how long have I had it? To answer your question, potentially all my life. I have had a GP say to me, looking at various parts of my body, specifically she was looking at my ankles in that particular case, and she said, well, it looks like you were misdiagnosed as a teenager. And I said, mm, yeah, well, I wasn't being diagnosed as a teenager. There were other things going on in my life at that time. Um, but when it actually started to express itself, would be eight years ago. So I was 59. Right. Now, over the years, I had had various, so psoriatic arthritis, people might have twigged. It's psoriatic sounds a lot like psoriasis. And yes, it's connected to the skin condition. So somewhere between 30 and 40% of people with the skin condition will develop the arthritic condition. Mm. Now, usually the skin condition presents itself first. And then the arthritis comes along later. That's not always the case, but it's the usual process. 
And uh, I think you're going to provide a link to uh, an article that I've written about what is psoriatic arthritis. So oh, people that's can go and have a look at a yeah. little bit more detail. Yeah. And uh, there are some other sort of more clinical links in that article if people want to delve even further. Um, but in my case, although I had strange skin outbreaks from time to time, it had never actually been diagnosed as psoriasis. It got diagnosed as a lot of other things and they treated and it would clear up and blah, blah, blah. And then when I was put on as part of the treatment for the supposedly rheumatoid arthritis, I was put on um, President Trump's favourite drug, hydroxychloroquine. Okay. Which comes with a warning that use it in care with people with psoriasis because in 20% of cases it will exacerbate the skin condition. Well, in my case, I kind of turned into a lizard. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I went from basically having virtually no psoriasis that we knew about to being covered in it. Yes. And uh, so off I go to a dermatologist. And was it itchy as well or? Mine wasn't. Yeah. Psoriasis is not necessarily an itchy condition. Um, It's just not very nice to look at. Yes. And um, the dermatologist looking at me, he didn't think that it looked like psoriasis. He actually thought it was a the skin version of lupus. But he did biopsies, and the biopsies came back definitely that it was psoriasis. And that was when I got re-diagnosed as, no, you haven't got RA, you've actually got psoriatic arthritis. Yes. And, of course, we stopped, we stopped the, um, the hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, good. Um, and that was, I think, uh, 2018. So I'd been originally diagnosed at 2000, in 2000, at the end of 2014. And as you mentioned earlier, I have other conditions as well. So I had at the time a hyperactive thyroid and they wouldn't actually treat the rheumatoid arthritis at all, what they thought was rheumatoid arthritis, until they'd got the thyroid under control because the thyroid can affect how these other conditions are potentially expressed. Manifest, that's right. So... There was a bit of a delay there. Um, so, and then as to your question, how do I manage the pain? I think I've been relatively fortunate in that A, I was diagnosed, even though not strictly correctly at first, although the, the treat, a lot of the treatments are exactly the same for both conditions. So I was getting treatment. So I got early treatment. I adopted the movement as medicine philosophy right from the start yes. and kept myself moving. Um, so I really haven't had chronic pain in the sense that, you know, do I have pain every day? No, I don't. I might wake up one morning, as happened quite a few years ago, with an extremely sore right wrist, for mm. example. And this is what psoriatic arthritis can be like. It's, it's ridiculously unpredictable. Is it an you autoimmune just, condition like lupus? It's an immune-mediated inflammatory disease. So it's an IMID. Is it autoimmune? Well, because of the genetic 
they still was classified as autoimmune. I'm still actually trying to find out at the moment whether it is still technically classified as autoimmune because they've bundled it in with the spondyloarthritis. Mm. So they've actually reclassified it fairly recently. Mm. But a lot of the documentation is still talking about it being an autoimmune condition because the documentation is from prior to the recent reclassification. So it's a bit of a grey area. I'm still okay. trying to sort that one out myself. Yeah. Um, I must actually target my rheumatologist and say can you tell me exactly what the latest classification is but it certainly yes for a long time has been classified as autoimmune it is technically now classified as an immune mediated inflammatory disease okay which is kind of a higher level up yes so there's definitely immune processes going on there and that's mediating the expression of the disease um, Robin, your arthritis is often invisible, which is not what everyone with a condition experiences. Um, for ex- I've got a sister with rheumatoid arthritis, so I know a little bit about that condition. Many of us, like myself, who experience mental health conditions, we're very aware of the impacts of invisible illness because we walk around looking normal and often we're far from normal. But what's been your experience having to live with an an illness that's often invisible i think it's somewhat similar to your experience that you're you're essentially walking around not feeling great um but you look fine and the issue probably is most important in a working environment potentially where you might need physical modifications and so on you might need adjustments to your working hours etc etc yeah but you look fine so people don't understand and people say but you look so healthy um, well, yes, you might look healthy, but you're not. Um, I think the other, one of the other issues is definitely uh, public transport, for instance, mm. is a classic because you need those, you need the disability seats or whatever, um, and people don't want to give them to you because you look fine. Yes. That is, that is one yeah. issue. Um, and I know because we're short of time, I mean, I could give other examples, but I'm thinking uh, of time, so yeah, maybe that will. Yeah, don't worry. Um, look, this is a really good segue, actually, into what we both want to talk briefly about. Um, I know that you're like me and you and a lot of our Twitter family are really well informed about the terrible ongoing effects of COVID-19, a pandemic that it may not even become endemic in our lifetimes, despite a narrative by our both both the politicians and the mainstream media that it's all over. Um, we've we've both successfully protected ourselves so far, although it's taken great effort, and both of us are at risk of um, severe illness despite being vaccinated. And to be quite honest, I'm not keen on catching a new virus. It's just come out of the animal kingdom, so I'll continue to take medications. But this invisible illness story of yours, it fits so well with what many people with long COVID are saying. Um, they find it hard to get treatment and support because they look totally normal. What are your thoughts on this phenomenon? Well, I, and I think I, I mentioned to you earlier this morning the latest that's coming out of the um, the Austrian uh, from the Austrian health minister, and I noticed some of our medical people in Australia are jumping on this too. And there's been uh, there's, there's more studies being done on so on, but they're talking about now that that COVID, if you catch COVID, you've actually damaged your immune system 
end of story. And if you catch it again, you damage your immune system again. Now, if we take that in conjunction with the fact that, as you say, the politicians and some of the media and say, oh, everybody's going to catch COVID ultimately. Why are we bothering? You know, just, just let it rip through the population. Okay, on that basis, if you put those two things together, you are going to have 8 billion people on the planet with that are immunocompromised. That's right. What that means is that you are essentially running the risk of having 8 billion chronically ill people. Now, that the costs of that, the economic costs of that, I think might be what is scaring the politicians away from actually doing something concrete about the whole thing. Because how are you going to face a situation economically where you have your whole population effectively immunocompromised and a very large proportion of that population chronically ill who need to maybe, you know, work part-time, for example? Now, there are a lot of jobs where it is very difficult to arrange those that that work around a part-time framework, for example. Uh, How are you going to financially support those who are unable to work at all? How many businesses are going to fold because they've no longer got customers because the people can't work who have money to spend? Like our whole capitalist dynamic and way of doing business would have to be completely reframed under that sort of scenario. So I think I'm very concerned about certainly the latest research that's coming out. We're seeing the increase in in cardio-related deaths and so on. Yeah, because it's essentially a cardiovascular condition that starts as a respiratory condition. It affects every organ in the body, according to all the research I'm reading. And, and, and I mean, a lot of the, I think you you probably follow some of the same medical people that I follow, like um, David Berger and David Joffre and so on. Um, you know, these people are on top of it and they're as, as worried as we are. And uh, I tend to trust, um, obviously, because I agree with them. <laughs> yeah. I trust them because I agree with them. Or I agree with them because I trust them. I'm not quite sure. I trust um, them because they're specialists. Yes, they uh, are. And not our, and, our politicians and media aren't. Yeah. But, you know, I, I do see some doctors and, and a friend of mine actually sent me a, a tweet um, overnight and said, oh, what do you think about this? You know, and he's raving on about the, the Moderna vaccine and how dangerous it is and it should be stopped and yada, yada, yada. So there are also doctors out there and we've had our own, who I shall not mention, yes. one of our own doctors who was busy saying, oh, no, it's not airborne and it's not this and yeah. it's not dangerous to children, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I think we so, all know who you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, you have to be... You have to be careful. There are people on other sides of the fence, but um, I think that there's money to be made. And I said to this friend of mine, I said, you've got to be careful because there is just as much as there's the shock jocks that make money out in the general media. There's also money to be made from being a medical shock jock. Of course there is. Of course And is. so some of these doctors jump on the bandwagon. Um, and this particular one I looked up, he'd had, He's written papers and then they've been removed from PubMed and so on because That's of right. lack of, of you know, uh, evidence. and After whatnot. peer review, yeah. Correct. So um, I think COVID is, is the, a huge problem. Um, I think that it's going to cost us an awful lot. It's going to 
totally disrupt our, our economic framework. Um, I think we're going to end up with an awful lot of chronically ill people. And I think we're being very naive yes, in I, our approach to it. I agree with all of that. Look, Robin, what more do you think our government and society in general should be doing for, as you said, the 40% of Australians currently living with a chronic illness? Goodness knows how many there will be as we move through this pandemic. Um, what, what should they be doing to help and assist in quality of life and contribution to society? I think they certainly have to help more in enabling those of us who can still work. I mean, I worked up until I was 67. Um, but they need to, to have better frameworks for us to be able to work flexible hours, flexible times, help us to remain financially and physically independent for as long as possible. I think that is critically important because it also means we're contributing members of society, we're paying tax, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that they could do um, is make some of the medications available earlier, some of the newer, better medications. So to get some of the new biologics, for instance, you have to fail all these other medications first. I think yes. it's false economy. Yes. Because by the time you've failed all those, in the meantime, you're getting worse. Yes. And then eventually, potentially, you can't work because you're so sick. And then, oh, bingo, now you qualify for the biologics. Great. But the biologics aren't a cure in most cases. All they are doing is slowing the progression of the disease. Yes. So whatever whatever point you've progressed up to at that point, that's where you stay, even mm. if it does slow the progression. So you're not going to get mm. any better. You're not going to be able to go back to work. Yes. So that's one of the one of the big things that they could do. Um, the NDIS. Well, I was actually knocked back from that because my condition wasn't stable, and I hadn't tried all the possible treatments. Mm. Now I will actually be technically no exaggeration because of my age and everything else. I'll be dead before I've tried all the possible treatments. Yes. I mean that's yeah. an impossibility. Yeah. So, uh, and, and psoriatic arthritis wasn't even on their list of, you know, they've got a list of certain conditions that, yes, if you're diagnosed with that, you're an automatic, right? Mm. Mine isn't even on there. And so I was going to have to go through a whole uh, rigmarole and stupidly I gave up the fight yeah. and just thought, well, I'll just wait. I'm nearly qualified yeah. for my aged care. I should have persevered because yeah. the NDIS packages are better. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Robin, I'm terribly sorry, but we, as always, we run out of time so quickly on this show. Um, I'd just like to advise our listeners that uh, quite a few of the articles um, that Robin has written about chronic illness and exercise and so on um, will be available on the show notes when the podcast goes up after this show. Robin, how can people make contact with you very briefly? Um, well, I think we can put my email address in the sh in the show notes as That's well, right. and my phone number. They can always contact me on Twitter at at Liberation. Um, I don't use that account terribly much, I must admit, but certainly for this purposes, um, you know, I think it's an ideal avenue for people to be able to easily contact me and not get lost in my other personal Twitter yeah. account, which the is one that monolithic. I follow. The one yes. that I follow, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it just gets lost. You, yeah. you get lost in there. Um, 
so those are probably uh, the best ways of contacting me. So my email, my personal email and my phone number will be in the, in the uh, show notes. Okay. Look, Robin, it's been wonderful to hear your story and you've given such insightful perspectives on chronic illness and how it's affected you and what more we should be doing to, um, you know, give people the living and emotional supports that they need to live a full life. And I hope that you manage to stay safe and continue to live your best life as often as you can. And I find your story so inspirational. And I guess I'm going to see you back in cyberspace soon. Bye for now. Bye, Robin. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.